the University of Arizona Bio5 Institute, we bring together hundreds of multifaceted experts that include world-class bioscientists, engineers, physicians, and computational researchers. This team science approach is designed to ignite creative solutions to the many complex biological challenges facing our families and communities, and has resulted in disease prevention strategies, promising new therapies, innovative diagnostics and devices, and improved food sustainability. Hello, welcome to another episode of Science Talks, a conversation hosted by the University of Arizona's Bio5 Institute. My name is Brittany Ulorn. And I'm Amy Randall-Barber. Certain diseases like Alzheimer's and high blood pressure are known to alter the link between brain activity and blood flow changes into the brain, leading to improper blood flow delivery to our brain cells. So this eventually leads to the death of brain cells and cognitive decline. Today, we're joined by Dr. Paolo Pires, Assistant Professor of Physiology and Surgery and Bio5 member. Dr. Pires studies how blood flow to the brain changes between healthy and disease states with an eye on possible therapies that can improve blood flow to mitigate disease. So thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you. I appreciate your opportunity. Of course, you're welcome. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about blood and the brain. So why is getting um, you know, an adequate amount of blood to the brain so important? And then how do different diseases um, like Alzheimer's affect it? So the brain is very interesting in that aspect because it's a very high active organ. It requires a lot of energy in order to operate. Like we all know, we're all thinking all the time, we're listening. I mean, everything that we do is somewhat controlled by our brain. And one of the paradoxes of the brain is that even though it requires so much energy, it doesn't store anything. Like there is very minimal storage in the brain. So for example, if you think about when you go exercise, for example, even like most people like me, we usually wake up, we drink coffee and we go exercise. And you know, our body can run on, on storage and our muscles, they have systems inside the muscle cells that they can access glucose quickly if needed. Uh, the brain doesn't. So everything that the brain needs, uh, the brain cells need, or most, needs to be delivered in real time. So when you have an increase in activity, for example, right now, if you're listening to me, paying attention, certain areas of your brain are processing all of this information. Those cells, if they were quiet before, now they're active they need more energy in order to operate. And that energy needs to be delivered in real time by the blood. So whenever we see that increase in activity, there is a matching blood flow response. This, and this is known for a long, long time. The first studies came out in the late 1800s in England. Uh, and, but really it's only in the last maybe 30, 40 years that we, with advances in imaging, they were actually able to understand how this process is controlled. And now that we have a better understanding of how it is controlled, we're also trying to understand why it's not working properly in some diseases. One of them are the diseases that are linked to dementia, for example, Alzheimer's. One of the things that we know in Alzheimer's disease is that there is this impaired blood flow response. Now, who comes first, chicken and the egg? That's the question, right? From my laboratory, we approach this from a very vascular-centric 
uh, way. So we think that really what's happening in those diseases that lead to dementia is that you have an impairment in the delivery first. So your delivery doesn't work as properly. So because it doesn't work as properly, your neurons are now, or your brain cells are now active. They are not receiving as much nutrients as they need. And over time, they start to die. So you start to have a neurodegeneration. So there are, there are other sides that will come into play into that as well, but that's really where we approach from our laboratory. We think that we are gonna start seeing those vascular changes first that will then lead to neurodegeneration. It's not only, right? I'm not here claiming that it's all the blood vessels. Because you know, I know many colleagues that would be mad at me with that. But uh, what I'm saying is that the vasculature is still central because if there is no delivery, then the neurons are gonna get hungry and they're not gonna have the food that they need. Makes sense? Makes a lot of sense. Yes, I'm, I'm curious, um, you know, you mentioned that you think something that contributes to these neurodegenerative diseases is that, you know, when the blood delivery is impaired. So I'm just wondering, do you all know, or are you working towards figuring out what causes that blood delivery to decrease? So in a nutshell, do we know? No. Uh, we know some, right? The whole picture we still don't understand. So one of the things that we know, so the blood vessels in our body, they have many different layers of different types of cells. One of those types of cells are called the endothelial cells. So those are the cells that are on the inside of the blood vessels. So they're lining the inside of the blood vessels and they are in direct contact with the blood. What we know is that these cells are extremely important for understanding the environment and mounting a response that will lead to an increase in blood flow to certain, certain areas that are active. One of the things that we know in Alzheimer's disease, for example, but that's not only for Alzheimer's, others, hypertension will cause that. Obesity, diabetes, all of these metabolic diseases to some extent, they change the function of these endothelial cells. Now, these endothelial cells, they are no longer able to mount a very robust response to cause an increase in the diameter or the radius of those vessels to allow more blood to flush in on those areas that are needed. So that is one of the things that happen. Another thing that we know happens, and this is very particular for Alzheimer's disease, is that one of the misfolded proteins or one of the culprits of Alzheimer's disease, amyloid beta, and it's amyloid beta is being talked a lot about in, uh, in the media now with the new antibody therapies that are coming out that are targeting this particular protein. So there is evidence that amyloid beta actually causes death of other cell types in the vasculature, the ones that are responsible for changing the diameter that are in contact or communicating with the endothelial cells. And when they die, then you lose that ability to increase your diameter. And then the amyloid forms what is called a scar, an amyloid scar in the vessel wall. But it's something, if you think like this, is like you're replacing a rubber band with a boulder, with a, with a ring of steel. So you know, now, now that ability that your vessels have to increase the diameter or decrease the diameter to adjust the needs of that particular area of the brain is lost because now you pretty much have a rigid pipe that cannot move. So it's really, and, and there are other things. We know that it alters communications of brain cells with the vasculature. We know it changes some other cells that are near capillaries. It, it changes a lot. But most of the studies really are focused on the endothelial cells because those are the ones, at least in our laboratory, that's our main focus is looking at those endothelial cells. Let's see what's wrong and 
and can we use that as a target and maybe improve and maybe reduce or at least slow down the progression of neurodegeneration? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I like that uh, that analogy you used about you know how before the blood vessel was a rubber band with you know all that elasticity and then it becomes mm -hmm. this steel pipe and I can see how that would really you know affect the the blood flow to the brain. Yeah, and there, there are other. Yeah, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was gonna say there is there are other implications on that as well. I mean, I I will try to not get too technical about it, but one of the things that we know as well is that this elasticity, if you want to call like in the, the term that is used in the literature is pulsatility, because these vessels, they really have a rhythm where they go up and down in diameter. And that pulsatility is also being shown to be important, not only for the delivery, but also for removing a lot of these bad proteins that are in the brain parenchyma. So now when you have that pulsatility normally kind of generates a flow of fluid that kind of washes like a washing machine, just washing bad things out of your clothes or you know your dishes now you lose that so not only you're preventing proper delivery but you're also losing that effect that will wash away all of those bad proteins so you create an environment where not only your your brain cells are not receiving the nutrients that they need but what needs to go out what needs to be cleared out is now staying so you're generating a toxic environment for those brain cells really quite an environment to start disease or to further disease that's already, you know, underlying that's already there. So yeah, big role that blood flow has to the brain. Yes. Yeah, definitely. And so you mentioned Alzheimer's and, and dementia. Are you, uh, are there other, other neurodegenerative diseases that you're looking at or, or, or um, are included in your work? So yes, uh, we we have some that we start working now, and some that are we have plans. So one of them that we and this comes from my PhD training at Michigan State University. I work a lot with ischemic strokes. So now and you know, ischemic stroke is a vascular event. Right? There is no more vascular disease in the brain than an ischemic stroke. So we are also some of the studies that we're doing, we're inducing this focal ischemia in the brain and we're looking at different targets, different proteins that we may be able to access and say, okay, can we, act, if we activate this, can we make the infarct or the, the loss of brain tissue smaller? Can we improve recovery? Can we, can we reduce motor, uh, the loss of motor coordination, for example? Those are not as much dementia as we think about dementia, because when people start thinking about dementia, it's mostly you start thinking about, oh, you're losing your memory. You don't recognize where you are anymore. But there are other parts of dementia, uh, which is called, this, uh, it's a subjective cognitive decline that also involve motor function, like right? fine motor skills. You know, I, I think about that with my grandma, she loved to knit. And, and then when she started aging, she started losing that ability to actually knit. And that is one part of dementia that we don't think about. And that is one that is linked to stroke because most strokes are gonna affect motor regions rather than memory regions. At least the smaller strokes that are not massive. So we now have a new model to induce strokes in our mice that instead of causing uh, a damage that if you go in the, in, the, in the scientific literature, 
most of the studies use a model that was developed in the 90s where you go and you block one of the major arteries on one side of the brain. So what happens is you end up with this massive damage of almost 50% of, of your brain is gone. We're now doing a much more focused stroke where we actually activate a, a drug with light and we can choose where in the brain we can actually cause that damage. And by changing the size of the light that we're adding, we can make the stroke bigger or smaller. So we can look at different aspects and how different areas of the brain may be responding differently. There are different targets that are for strokes here or strokes there or the vasculature itself. So that is another one. We have plans of looking at other diseases such as Parkinson, uh, Huntington's, the evidence for a vascular impairment in those diseases is not as strong as it is for Alzheimer's, for example, but it's still there. And so, you know, we're slowly trying to expand our portfolio and just see what is happening with the vasculature in all of these different kinds of situations. Yeah, that's really awesome. And then you may end up finding similarities in some of the, some of the different diseases, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. There, there, it's very likely that there will be. I mean, you know, there is a one of the things that it's interesting about the blood vessels is that there is a lot of redundancy in the system. Mm -hmm. So you have many different pathways that will culminate in the same response. So, you know, sometimes one is down, the other one just goes up to try to overcome the loss of one. But there are some common themes that, that you know, every at one point you, you reach the end of the funnel. And if the problem is right there at that end of the funnel, then no matter how things are working upstream, when you get there, you're just not gonna go. It's like, if you think about a 10 lane highway, just merging into a one-way street, right? If there's an accident right there, there's nothing you can do. You're just gonna be blocked. You're just gonna be in traffic forever. Yeah. I'm really curious, how did you get into this line of work? What drew you to it? <laughs> Oh, that's a long, long story. Oh, <laughs> so I, I love to tell stories, right? Like I, I am a, even though I, I, I feel myself like a grandpa because I just love to see people down. Let me tell you a story. So, you know, I, when I, I came to the United States in 2007 and I had finished my master's degree back in Brazil, that's where I'm from. And I was working in cancer research at the time. And I came in uh, with my wife. My wife got a PhD position like, to go into a, a PhD program at Michigan State University. And I was unemployed, had just finished my master's, didn't have what to do. I said, yeah, you know, let's go. Let's try something new. And when I got here, I applied to a position at Michigan State University for a lab technician. And I didn't know what the position was about, but, you know, I just applied. And as it turns out, the PI that needed that lab technician, she was working in the cerebral circulation. Completely different from what I was working before. I didn't have any idea about, you know, I had an idea of the vasculature given my bachelor's, but I didn't really understand the brain and how the vasculature in the brain is so different. But I started, and then I, I was doing some things. I did in my master's. I, did some techniques that she wanted in her lab. So she hired me and, and we just flew, like we got along really well. And she was, she still is a very passionate person about her PhD, about her research. And I just fell in love with it. And I fell in love with it and never left. And then when I went to my postdoc over at the University of Nevada, Reno, 
that really cemented my love for the for the vasculature because I went from a lab that was stroke related that was my PhD lab and went to a more vascular really hardcore vascular physiology my mentor at the University of Nevada Reno he really he's really interested in ion channels how they in endothelial cells and muscle cells and how they regulate the vascular function so you know I went from we're looking at what happens during a stroke to the really nitty-gritty of how the vasculature works and that was also in the cerebral and then that was that was it for me I said no this is what I want to do just to differentiate myself from my previous training, I decided to go more towards, let's see what happens in neurodegeneration. But that was those two experiences were really what cemented my love in this area. Wow, that's really great. Thank you for sharing that. I love, I love stories of mentorship and you know that increase your passion and, and kind of help you along find your find your way and your path. Yeah. Thank yeah, you. no, they were great. And like both of them, they were very supportive mentors. And they really helped me grow as a scientist. That's wonderful. Are you a mentor to anyone currently? I do. I have my students in, in the lab uh, right now. I, so right now my lab is kind of small because we're transitioning in funding. Uh, and I'm, I'm in the process of hiring more people. But right now I have one postdoc, mm -hmm. um, one PhD student, another one that will come back. She's on her first year, so she's doing her rotations. So she's coming back in May, uh, one master's student and a couple of undergrad students. Wow. And I, I, yeah, I do, I mentor them as much as I can. Just, I, I love them like because I had great mentors. I, I just want to pass that along. Yeah, yep. I, that's great. <laughs> Thank yeah. you for sharing. <laughs> I think we hear that from, you know, a number of the people we've had on our podcast is, you know, their passion for serving as a mentor right now really stems from those experiences they had when they were younger, you know, when they were going through undergrad or grad school and having really incredible mentors. And now they want to pass that on to the next generation. So it's, it's wonderful that you have found that as well. Yeah. And that was one of the, one of the driving forces for me to go down the academic scientific path. Because, you know, nowadays the, the private sector has so many opportunities for really good science. But to me, I mean, at least from my understanding, in, in, you don't get the same type of mentorship, such close mentorship as you get in academia, where you're training someone to be a scientist. And, you know, you, you watch them grow and you watch them develop. It, it's, it's unique and it's beautiful. It is. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm curious, kind of going back to something you were talking about, earlier, you know, I know you're saying how your research is really rooted in understanding the biology of these diseases and understanding how impairments in blood flow affect them. Um, how does your work help to inform potential therapies um, for diseases that might be, you know, in the brain and affected by blood flow? The, the way that I think about this is that it's really what we were talking about a little bit before is finding that common problem what is it what is the one thing that all of these pathways are going to merge into you know maybe be two or three different things but are they all all of these 10 20 different ways of getting there are they getting there and that's where they're stopping and that's where they are impaired so if we find these common targets then it, among different types of diseases then we have something that we can treat that can have a broader implication Right. So the one problem with the cerebral circulation is that it's very unique, 
from the rest of the body. Some things that you will see that are true for your gut, for example, your, the blood vessels in your gut are not necessarily true for the blood vessels in your brain, which is good and bad. It's good because it gives us a better opportunity to, for more specialized therapies. It's bad because it's kind of difficult to base yourself, you know, formulate your hypothesis based on a rationale that you get from the literature, because it's not necessarily what happens on those blood vessels that other groups are studying is true for the brain. So we always have to do a little bit more groundwork. But really, the goal is we find this, the this this uh, this the funnel. We find where everything is stopping, and can we intervene? Is this something that it's unique enough that we can improve its function in the organs where these diseases are happening without messing with the entire physiology of the body? Because you know that is really one of the problems. For example, let's think if you want to do a therapy that is going to improve delivery, right? We're going to make our blood vessels dilate, increase in diameter, more blood going into the brain. Now, you don't want to do that in your entire body because what that's going to do is going to drop your blood pressure. And then, you know, you may not be able to get out of bed. Yeah, your brain is doing fine, but then what else? So we need to find what is unique about the cerebral circulation and if we can target, because another problem is getting drugs into the areas that they need to go into the brain. So, you know, it, it's a fine balance, but that's really where we're gearing towards you. And the way that my lab is trying to go about this is using gene therapy. There is a, so there this study from a group, and that's what we got the Alzheimer's Foundation uh, grant to actually study. So a group in, in Germany, they did a screening of many different types of viruses. And they were able to find one particular serotype of virus that is fairly specific for endothelial cells in the blood vessels in the brain. It doesn't, I mean, from all of the other organs that they studied, they couldn't find a virus expressing in those areas. So we are making use of that particular tool to start playing around with things in the brain. Okay, so can we, because we can use that virus to add things into the endothelial cells, we can use that virus to remove things from there, right? So if we think that this protein is being bad, let's just take it off. Let's see what happens. So that's really where we are. We're using this tool that was developed and in a way of targeting more specifically. And then if you can target more specifically, maybe that can be, you know, we can pass that on to a therapy. I won't go that far because we all know that, I mean, I'm a basic scientist, but it's a start, right? We can start playing with this. And then once you find a target, then we can start playing with drugs. Maybe we can look at pharmacology. Let's, let's add a compound here. Let's see what it happens. How does the whole animal take this? So that's, that's our approach. I think that's a really great explanation. And I like what you said at the end about, you know, you're a basic scientist, so you don't want to take it too far. But I think that's, you know, what's important is we don't just get excited about the people doing the directly, you know, translational projects. Like those are obviously very important, but it's good to remember that even the people understanding the basic biology and the mechanisms, like doing this basic science, it still has these large impacts that will one day, you know, help patients. So I think it's, yeah. it's great that you're bringing light to that and telling us about the, the big impacts of your work. That's what we hope, right? I mean, we, uh, since I'm studying those neurodegenerative diseases, the goal and the hope is that we'll find something that will help these patients. You know, at least if we are not the ones to develop, 
uh, we found something that can be taken by a pharmaceutical company or by other more translational researchers, and they can make use of that in a therapeutic setting. Well, and I think that's the beauty of the Bio5 Institute as well, is, is having others around you um, that you could, you know, potentially collaborate with or go to for, um, you know, working on a project together and, and um, creating something or getting information from someone that helps you to kind of move forward with something that you've gone uh, and, and found. So um, yeah. we see examples of that all the time here at Bio5 and just... I, I just love hearing about them and um, making stories about them. So thank you for sharing that information. And <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah, that's a, I'm new to the Bio5. I think I just recently became a member, but I do know quite a few faculty that are members and I'm trying slowly to get to know everyone and all of the possible opportunities for collaborations and, uh, you know, drug development and tether ligands and all those great things that you guys do at the Institute. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, I know you mentioned earlier on, you know, you have a wife who also has her doctorate. Um, what are the types of things that you or you and her enjoy doing outside of work? Um, so I think, you know, we talk a lot on the podcast about work-life balance and how being a PI like yourself is a very difficult, demanding job. So what are the kinds of things you do to take a step back and recharge? Okay, so I'll tell you the things we used to love to do before you know, then the, the newborn came up because now really it's just sleeping whenever we can. <laughs> uh, but really, well, and that's another thing why we love to song. We like to go on hikes. Like we love to go just, and you know, here in Tucson, Andy, you just go 10, 20 minutes each way. You're in the middle of the wilderness, just doing hikes in the desert. Uh, we live nearby the Sabino Canyon Park. So that was our Saturday, Sunday morning kind of, of, uh, just little thing. We would go and just do some of those hikes over at the park. And uh, that's really what we hope to get back to doing soon once the, once the kid is a little bigger. And hopefully the pandemic goes down as well, because, you know, even though we're outside, we have a little kid that's not vaccinated. But hopefully we'll get those back again. But really, it's going on hikes and eating. Like we're, we're foodies. We like to go to restaurants and just Tucson eat. is a great place for that. <laughs> it really is. Like the, the food here is outstanding. <laughs> well, wonderful to hear. I think that resonated with me a lot. I have a, a six month old right now and I, I know what you mean about, you know, used to loving to hike and get out every opportunity that my husband and I could, but now with the baby, it's just not as practical, but as he gets older, I'm sure we'll get back into, you know, being more outdoorsy, so looking forward yeah, to it. Yeah, it's just those first few months are, are you know, and you're tired, especially for you, you know, you just went through the pregnancy and everything. You're probably way back on, on your sleep schedule, so. Yeah, it's it's tiring, <laughs> that's for sure. I don't know if I'll ever catch up on sleep, but I could I could use a few, a few solid nights. <laughs> probably in 18 years, I would say. Yeah, yeah, when they go to college, <laughs> when I ship yeah. them off. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh. Well, we like to end these podcasts on a fun note, even though we did just end on a lighter note, I suppose, with that question. Um, but we do like to think of our researchers as superheroes. So if you were a superhero, um, what do you think your superpower would be? 
Uh, so I thought hard about that question because I really don't know. Is there a, like, could be like super nagging or something like that? Because I, if you ask my students, they're going to say that I nag them all the time. Come on, we need, this. Finish this. we need this data for the grant. We need this to finish this paper. So probably super nagging would be my superpower. And theirs would be the power to block me when I'm telling them. When I'm annoying them. Oh, they just have these uh, helmets, I can imagine, that just kind of block out the, the nagging from you. That's funny. Oh, the, the noise canceling headphones. I, I yeah. open the door to my office, they all go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. No, okay. but yeah, I, that, that would be my superpower. I like that. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Well, thank you again, Dr. Pires, for joining us today. I know Amy and I both really enjoyed our conversation with you, and I know our listeners um, will get a lot out of it. So thank you again for joining us on this podcast. Oh, again, thank you very much for the opportunity. This has been a lot of fun, and I'm always glad to talk a little bit about our work. So thank you. I appreciate it, and I appreciate all of the hard work you guys do at the Bio5 Institute. Oh, thank you. We appreciate that. Well, thank you also to our listeners for joining us today on another episode of Science Talks. For more information about the BioFive Institute, please visit our website at biofive.org. And from all of us at BioFive, we will see you in the next episode. Thanks to our listeners for tuning in to another episode of Science Talks. Continue the conversation with us next time as we learn more about the amazing science happening at the University of Arizona's Bio 5 Institute.